On April 21, 2015, Carmen Siriani, Morris Hillquit Professor of Labor and Social Thought at Brandeis University, moderated a panel at the Ash Center entitled Getting to Yes or No, Making Ballot Initiatives More Voter-Friendly and Deliberative. John Gastil, Professor and Head, Department of Communication, Arts and Sciences at Penn State University, John Hecht, Massachusetts State Representative, and Tyrone Reitman, Executive Director, Healthy Democracy, Oregon, all gave remarks. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. For more information, visit ash.harvard.edu. Yeah, so I just wanted to welcome everybody to the Ash and the event is part of the challenges of democracy series organized by the Ash Center. And the event is part of the challenges of democracy series organized by the Ash Center. And the polarized opinion environment produced by referendum campaigns. So voters feel that it's hard to make up one's mind about questions related to casino industry or criminal penalties, for example. And advocacy groups are producing biased information that only supports their own cause. So earlier today, the Ash Center and uh, my department in the University of Turku uh, organized an academic workshop on the same topics where we discussed deliberative and participatory ways to reform democratic institutions and uh, using examples <coughs> from different countries. So, For example, Finland just recently adopted a new citizens initiative that allows 50,000 citizens to raise issues to the parliamentary agenda. Uh, in this panel discussion, we get to hear more about one specific innovative process developed in Oregon from the perspective of both practitioners, politicians and researchers. Without further words, uh, I would like to introduce the moderator of the panel, Carmen Siriani, uh, who is the Maurice Hillquit Professor of Labor and Social Thought and Professor of Sociology and Public Policy at Brandeis University. Uh, he has published a book, uh, Investing in Democracy, Engaging Citizens in Collaborative Governance, in 2009, and also worked extensively on democratic innovation in the US. Maya, thank you. Okay, welcome uh, everyone to uh, what should be an exciting panel. Maya kind of stole the thun the, the, the analytic thunder by uh, saying how important it is to figure out ways of combining or moving beyond some of the problems of direct democracy referendum and initiative and combining with other forms, especially deliberative forms of democracy and we have you know, what is a particularly exciting example of this today. Um, let me introduce the three folks, uh, not in order of, as they're going to speak, but in order as I have them down here. Um, John Gastel, uh, who I've known his work for a long time, uh, has written a number of books. I think most recently is it the uh, book on the jury, uh, uh, the jury and democracy. Also, an edited book with Tina Nabachi, Matt Leiniger, and 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 one other person whose name I forget. Um, Democracy in Motion, and his his book from 22 years ago or so, 
uh, Democracy in Small Groups has been reissued last year, this last year. Um, and John is a professor and head of the Department uh, at, of Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State University. Um, and he has been one of the people to really kind of head this evaluation, really looking very closely at the Citizens Initiative Review in, in Oregon. And uh, <coughs> John Hecht um, uh, heads uh, uh, Healthy Democracy Oregon. Uh, oh, Tyrone, right? Oh, sorry, sorry, no, <laughs> I'm sorry, Tyrone. Reitman heads Freaky uh, Healthy Friday. Democracy. No, I'm here. looking at you, and, and, and yes, yes. <laughs> Who has an MPA from the University of Oregon, and he's the executive director of Healthy Democracy Oregon, and he's one of the people that makes this work. Um, and not only the process, but trying to figure out the politics, and I, I look forward to hearing more about that. And uh, John Hecht is a member of our legislature and has a BA uh, from Stanford, an MA from the Fletcher School, and a, uh, a JD law degree from Harvard Law School. So we will first start with Ty, right? Yeah. And then and John, and then and then John uh, will respond. Okay. And then we'll open it up to questions. So. Great. And thanks for that introduction. Uh, thanks for having me here, too. I love talking about this stuff. And it's been a thrill for me to, over the course of the day, listen to the research being done, not only on the CIR, but about the field in general. Um, so I'm going to start with just a really basic overview and spend about 10 minutes talking about how the CIR works, what it is, and, and a little bit about how it came to be, and then turn it over to John and to John. Um, talk about the research, then talk about uh, the kind of politics and prospects in Massachusetts as well. Um, but to start with, you all have a flyer, or hopefully you all have a little flyer that gives a very brief synopsis of why we developed the CIR in Oregon and what it's intended to do and, and how it works. And I'll go over those just very briefly before talking about the background. The CIR uh, is a form of public deliberation that kind of comes from the field of deliberative democracy focused on small group work. Uh, specifically, it's an adaptation of the citizen jury method of public deliberation, which has been around for a long time, pioneered by a fellow named Ned Crosby, uh, that founded the Jefferson Center for New Democratic Processes uh, about 30 years ago at this point. The CIR is the adaptation is to take a really strong method of public deliberation and then put it in service to voters, in this case um, by providing evaluations of statewide ballot initiatives. This is really um, brought about because of some common areas of concern that are expressed by voters and by elected officials around the quality of information that voters receive during contested ballot measure elections in particular. There's a stat here. Um, at the top of this page that's pretty common across states that we've seen, which is roughly 75% of voters or thereabouts say ballot measures are oftentimes complex and confusing and hard to understand. The stat that is not here is a secondary stat that says roughly two-thirds of those voters still go on to vote with whatever information they do have. And it's, I, for those of us that live in states with direct democracy, that should be pretty plainly obvious that people take their rights seriously. Uh, to vote and they'll do the best they can with what they have. So the CIR 
aims to provide greater information to voters by way of a very straightforward method of public deliberation that basically convenes a small group, in this case 20 to 24 voters, that are randomly selected and demographically balanced based upon the state electorate to spend three to five days hearing from campaigns and hearing from experts in order to gather information and distill it down to a page that goes into the statewide voters guide for distribution of voters across the state. And what's on that page essentially is a distillation of the key facts or key findings, so pieces of information that everybody should know when you go to sit down to vote. And then a short summary of the most important arguments for and against the measure. And you can see that you know, infographic on the bottom of this first page. And it's a three-step process where we convene a randomly selected group, we spend some time deliberating, and then in their own words they summarize what they feel voters should know about the issue, and then it's distributed in the case of Oregon through our official voters guide published by the Secretary of State. Um, John's here to speak to the research. I, I'll sum it up as, uh, with a very short comment that we know it works. We know it works really well and it has an impact and it's meaningful to voters. So when you provide voters with better information, especially information they can trust, it uh, makes a difference in how they understand these issues and how they vote. Um, this, the CIR really has two origin stories, um, which are slightly different, but I think uh, provide a pretty, pretty interesting narrative for thinking about the linkage between direct democracy and deliberative democracy. So I'll touch on this for just a minute. Uh, the CIR is actually born um, out of the work of Ned Crosby and the Jefferson Center in Washington State um, back in 1999. Uh, Ned having worked on using citizen juries, same small group format for years on analyzing policy and in engaging citizens in better understanding policy, uh, was stuck with the thought of how do you put this really high quality deliberation in a context that will actually matter to decision makers. And he and his uh, colleague and wife, Patricia Ben, um, convened a group of uh, notable individuals in the state of Washington from civil society and former elected officials uh, to talk about where are the needs in our democratic process for more deliberation. And they went around and around, and at some point, the um, former governor of Washington State, Mike Lowry, suggested, hey, what about ballot initiatives? You know, it's something they hadn't considered at the time. They thought, well, that's, that's a very elegant fit high-quality deliberation, obvious need for deliberation. And from that point forward, they began to work uh, to develop the concept in Washington State. I first heard about this uh, in graduate school. A very prominent activist in, in Eugene that studied democratic theory sent out an email to a good colleague of mine that eventually went on to co-found Healthy Democracy. And this email had a list of, I think there were 10 things in it. You know, here are 10 things you can do to improve American democracy, and CR was like number four or five in the list. And so I noted it in my head at the time, went on and finished my graduate um, studies, and then went back to work in the field I'd worked uh, prior to graduate school, which is around good governance, and uh, a lot of work in the initiative process in Oregon State. And so I went back to work, uh, working on campaign finance reform and related issues and ended up working on a pair of ballot initiatives um, from start to stop, like every, every job in between, and grew very frustrated as I was more acquainted up front with the inner workings of the process by how 
poorly voters are treated in terms of the information they're provided, whether it's through the process of gathering signatures, and I was a hell of a good signature gatherer, I've got to <laughs> say, but, um, but working in the field, it's, it's obvious that uh, it's really easy to manipulate voters to get signatures on a piece of paper they're supposed to be indicative of support for public policy. You know, fast forward to the actual campaign, and it's just as easy to uh, know what words should go into a voter's pamphlet statement, know what words should be, um, should prove effective in the public uh, messaging campaign at the end of the cycle. And it was during that period of that campaign that I went back to my studies and back to that email from 2003 and thought, uh, in the course of doing a broader pol uh, policy analysis of initiative reform in general, what could you do to actually mitigate this challenge in a way that would stay true to the intention of direct democracy? And that's why I landed on the CIR. So um, kind of the question that I, I wrestled with at the time was, and it, is, it seems kind of naive in retrospect, was it's, um, it's very easy to manipulate and distort truth, especially when you don't have anyone at the end of the day accountable for what's been said. And that's basically the premise for direct democracy, you know, good and bad. And there are many studies out there that have talked about voting cues and the aggregation of voting cues as a way for voters to understand and align their values with their choices um, on the ballot. And I think the obvious thing that stands aside from voting cues is the trustworthiness of those cues. And I say that because over the course of you know, the eight years or so I've been working on this, I've had conversations with a wide array of interesting people that work in direct democracy. Um, yeah, some of which I would categorize as, as my heroes for sure. Uh, some of which uh, I would say are borderline crooks. <laughs> um, one of which actually landed in jail. Um, <laughs> they crossed the border. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and I had a conversation with a very prominent um, campaign consultant in the state of Washington a few years ago that I think summed this up best. I kind of went through my usual spiel on, on the potential benefits of the CIR and talked about um, kind of inner workings and, and wanted to elicit um, her thoughts on this and asked her point blank, okay, you're in the role of consultant, so you, know, you consult many powerful people. What would you have to say about this particular idea? And she said, so I'm paraphrasing pretty badly, but she said something akin to, well, you know, 90% of the time, I, you know, I would tell them that deliberation, transparency, um, you know, sunlight is a good thing when it comes to direct democracy. But then there's 10% of the time where, you know, frankly, my job is to pull the wool over the public's eyes to get the result that I know that they want. And for that particular consultant, you know, it was a 90-10 split. I'm sure there are others where it's 50-50. Um, and they're probably somewhere it's 99 to 1. <laughs> You know, I'll hold that one out because I always hold out hope. Uh, that's not always the case. And um, what it comes down to, irrespective of that gradient, is a question of trust and who you can trust when the questions are challenging and complex. And it goes back to the CIR because we've done this work for long enough at this point to know that it works and to know that it's trustworthy. And it's a process that I think marries kind of our, some of our greatest democratic ideals and bridges that gap between our ideals and our experience. So I'll close with that and I look forward to questions after everyone has, has spoken. Um, 
because it's, it's tremendous to be here talking about um, this process. When I started back in 2008, it wasn't, I love deliberation and <laughs> deliberative democracy. I didn't start out in this work as an advocate for it. I really started out as you know, a concerned Oregonian uh, wanting to see direct democracy work. So it's a thrill for me to be here and <laughs> look forward to talking about it. I'm more accustomed to the life of a lecturer, so I can't help standing and pointing. <laughs> so excuse me if I can't sit still, but it's true. Uh, a couple things I want to start with. Uh, one is whenever I give a presentation on this research, I always emphasize that we are a large research community. Uh, and I invite anyone in the audience who's interested in participating in this research project. There's lots of authorship opportunities, students out there uh, and assistant professors. Um, and so if you're interested in that, just follow up with me by email. Uh, Maya, Michael, and others in this room actually are already kicking around ideas both for how to use our existing data and how to collect data in the future, which we have plenty of funding for. So the research effort continues on. Um, also, a special thanks to the National Science Foundation, which is part of the reason we have money. All right. So uh, the CIR is indeed uh, state law in Oregon. Um, it has also been introduced as legislation in Washington, piloted in a couple other states, Arizona and Colorado. And then Massachusetts, we just got this updated. It now has a House bill number. It was a docket number. But uh, Sam pointed out that it's now 561. Um, so that's right here, obviously, in this state. Uh, so it's interesting to see how it's going to expand in time. Uh, but uh, I think the, the basic idea is to keep refining and crystallizing the process. And Massachusetts may just turn out to be the second state to start doing that in a formal way. Um, you're going to see research based on a, a ton of different research methods. And I've got to say, the scope of the research is, is enormous. We're just going to look at three little snippets. I really am going to try to keep this short. So, some of that is coming from phone and mail surveys conducted over the whole time of the CIR since 2010. Some is more from online survey experiments, where we experimentally expose people to the CIR or not the CIR. One of the exciting things about those experiments is these are with real voters on real issues that they're going to vote on. Uh, and we take those who haven't yet read the voter's guide and give them variations in what they see and see what we get as a result. And then finally, the piece that is, uh, even for the folks who are here for a workshop this morning, is new to them, is we actually did an intensive usability study, which is in-depth interviewing with voters, actually using the CIR, talking out loud about their experience of it and so on. And you will be treated to a quarter of my talk time is devoted to one voter, and you'll see her experience of reading the CIR statement in front of her and what happens when she does that. All right, so survey findings. Let's take a look at a few of these. So from 2010 to 2014, the green bar is what you really want to track, which is what percentage of the electorate is actually reading one of these statements in the course of the election. And it started low, but has climbed up to about 44%. So not quite half of Oregonians are reading the statement at this point, but it's getting there. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes in the future. Where are they hearing about it? Where are they learning about it? Well, it's absolutely crystal clear. I, I knew this before we collected this piece of data. It's coming from the voters' pamphlet. The genius of the CIR is that it's not just another wonderful deliberative process that happens and a few people know about it. The point is that when they are finished deliberating, they write a page of analysis that goes into the official voters' pamphlet mailed to every registered voter's household. And the reading rate in states like Oregon is extremely high. Note that it's also one of the states that votes by mail. So you're getting your ballot and you're getting your voting guide, and they're not that far apart from each other. So overwhelmingly, that's where people find out about the Citizens Initiative Review statements that are in their voting guide. Now, this is just one of many different slides I could show you that's about knowledge gains. The most straightforward consequence of reading the CIR statement is increasing your store of accurate 
factual claims that you can use potentially as a basis for making a voting decision. It's the experimental part here. The yellow is the control. The green is reading the CIR statement. We've done all sorts of variations where you get exposed to different parts of the voter's guide. And again, the consistent result is that you not only become more accurate in your knowledge, but you become more confident in your accurate knowledge. Little footnote for those who are interested in the details. Uh, we just played with one of the issues in 2014. And it actually looks like it's hard to get people to completely reject things that are flat out false. We can get them to say they're not sure. But it's actually more challenging to get someone to absolutely reject something as false. It's easier to get them to recognize that something is true that happens to be true. But at least we can get them to the point where when we show them a false statement, they say, I don't know if that's true. That's something. How about those interviews? All right. So these interviews were conducted uh, with 60 different voters, 40 in Oregon, 20 in Colorado, where a pilot uh, was run. And uh, there's a bunch of findings that come out of these from, based on, again, the direct experience of voter. I'm going to show you two findings. The first one is that conventional materials are insufficient. This sort of corresponds with the more survey-related data that Ty showed you. Uh, basically, a voter has two main sources of information. The text of the measure itself, and I would tell you that I would make the font larger, but that's the point, is you can't read it. You know, some people do. There is a percentage who will say they actually read the text of the measure, but it's extremely difficult, and the reading level is well up in college. Uh, we've actually looked at that quantitatively. Now, if you want information from the campaigns, here's the kind of thing you're likely to get, right? So this is a genetically modified uh, organism's food labeling law. This law works in other countries. Now, who do you trust, right? Good things or bad things, right? That's usually the kind of argument you're getting. It's easy to understand. It's very straightforward. Uh, it may speak to you on some level, but for a lot of voters, remember the percentage of American voters who even identify as independent is increasing. For a lot of voters, this kind of information, totally not credible. They don't know what to do with it other than skip it, basically. It's the same thing they see on television. So the second finding is that voters who see this Citizens Initiative Review Statement tend to find it very useful. Again, we have lots of survey statistics on this and so on, but I want to give you an actual sort of experience of seeing one for the first time that comes from Colorado. Now, the little clip of video you're going to see, about two and a half minutes long, is a fortuitous result of careless research. Um, I told you that Oregon is a vote by mail state. Well, Colorado is as well for the first time in 2014. And this intrepid researcher had not determined that fact at the time that we scheduled our voter interviews. So virtually all the voters who came into the usability testing lab had not yet voted, as was our intent. But there were a couple who traipsed in and said, oh dear, I've already voted. All right, fine, well, go ahead and do the study anyway. You, you know, we're paying you. Um, so why don't you take a look at the Citizens Initiative Review Statement. Well, here's what happens to one voter who, again, has already completed her ballot. Um, she sees the pamphlet, you know, the information in it, gets this kind of information such as this. Here's just one example of one of the bullet points in here, right? Two-thirds of the foods and beverages we buy and consume would be exempt from GMO labeling, right? Meat and dairy products would be exempt even if they come from animals raised on GMO feed and grain. Those are the kinds of things that these citizen panels are distilling from the, you know, volumes of information they see. Here's how this voter experiences that, reading that statement. Yeah, when I show that, I, I always show that initial part where she's sitting there reading it and that long pause, right? It affects me a little bit emotionally. I, I heard about this from one of the interviewers. They said, oh, you're going to love video number 26 or whatever. And I watched it, and it upset me. I mean, I felt bad for her. I mean, I've been that voter. I, I haven't, can't say I've had that experience before election day. Usually it's after the election day when I voted for the Seattle monorail, and somebody says, you do realize how stupid that is? And I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And they're like, 
you don't understand how it's funded, do you? And I say, no, hadn't really thought about that. I love the monorail in The Simpsons. Uh, but it's a terrible feeling. But to have that feeling before Election Day, again, is an accident of a research error. But for me, it's, it's pretty resting. Anyway, summary four points. First, the placement in the voters pamphlet is the key. Uh, that's the idea that is really special about the CIR, is that that small intensive deliberation has a voice. Doesn't depend on the media, doesn't depend on someone tweeting it, it's in the voters pamphlet. Second, uh, voters generally find it useful. A lot of them find their way to it. Uh, it's not the only thing they would necessarily read, but for a lot of voters it's a powerful and distinct source of information. Um, it's not so much a, a, a cue um, it's not so much an advisor as it is really a source, a source of, 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 uh, that might cause you to pause and reflect. One of the things we found in one of the most powerful effects of the CIR was on a mandatory minimum sentencing law. And one of the reactions people had after they read the CIR, they said, well, I, you know, if you're going to press me on it, I'll vote against this law at this point. But I'm, I'm, I'm a little taken aback because I thought I was voting for it. So it doesn't so much make you vote a certain way as it makes you stop and think. And then finally, uh, it really does increase knowledge. That's, again, the most consistent effect. Sometimes that's going to change how you vote, sometimes not. But let's indulge the, the possibility that it will actually make a smarter electorate, a more reflective electorate. It will make voters recognize that just because the title of a bill is appealing doesn't mean that the bill itself is appealing. So, again, that's just a little taste of the research, but it gives you an idea for the kinds of things we look at and the ways we approach studying the Citizens Initiative Review. Thank you. Well, hello, everybody. Um, it's great to be here with all of you. Um, this is a, a, a wonderful opportunity for me, and I really appreciate um, Ty and John sharing their experience and their uh, understanding of CIR. Uh, CIR is, is a brand new idea for Massachusetts. It's, it's a pretty new idea out in the Northwest as well, in, in Colorado and in Arizona. Uh, but for us back here in the East, um, I had never heard of it until three or four months ago. Um, so this is a great opportunity for me to learn and to get the benefit of your uh, thoughts on this as we move forward with, with the bill uh, that I have filed, uh, which as John said is now House 561. If you want to go on the Massachusetts legislature website, you can see the bill. Uh, to be honest with you, we cribbed the whole thing from Oregon. Uh, it's not so true. You, you changed it a little. Well, a little bit. And we're open to changing it some more because Massachusetts is not Oregon. Why don't I talk a little bit about um, initiative petitions in Massachusetts? Many of you are probably from Massachusetts, Massachusetts voters, uh, but there are probably some of you who are not, and even those of you who are may not be um, familiar with all the ins and outs of the history of initiative petitions in Massachusetts. We've had initiative petitions uh, here since 1919, uh, so about 95 years now, uh, but it's really in the last 30 years or so that initiative petitions have really become a big deal in Massachusetts. If you look back uh, over the 95 years that we've had initiative petitions, for the first 65 years or so, up until the mid-1980s, uh, there were only uh, 28 initiative petitions put forward. And in the 30 years since then, uh, we have had 47 
put forward. So fully two-thirds of all of the initiative petitions that have been put forward in Massachusetts over nearly 100 years have taken place in the last 30 years. And again, if you're a Massachusetts voter, you're aware of this. The last few election cycles, there were, I think, three, or I think the last one, most recent one, we had four uh, initiative petitions. But stretching back into the mid-1980s, we've really had quite a few in really every single statewide uh, election. Uh, and they've been complicated. They've been important. Um, just to go over the last uh, couple of cycles, you'll remember in 2010, we had three initiative petitions. One in involved uh, motor vehicle repairs. It was styled as, on the one hand, the right to choose where you would take your car to be repaired. On the other hand, it was a question of protection of intellectual property rights. So pretty complicated ideas. Uh, we also had one on uh, medication to end life, what the proponents call the death with dignity uh, initiative. Pretty tough one. Uh, people's right to choose whether they want to continue to live against society's interest in preserving life. A lot of questions around medical ethics, very complicated. Uh, we also had the medical use of marijuana uh, initiative, which passed overwhelmingly, and we still haven't gotten implemented. <laughs> so that's another of the complications that comes from legislative initiative, of uh, the uh, initiative petitions is that uh, when, once they get passed, it's often difficult for the, uh, for the bureaucracy to get them uh, actually implemented. Uh, the last uh, election, 2014, you remember we had four initiative petitions, one on the indexing of the gas tax to inflation, one on the expansion of the bottle deposit law, uh, a gambling uh, initiative, and then one on earned sick time. Big issues. One's, frankly, as a member of the legislature, I wish we had handled in the legislature. Mm -hmm. um, but we did not, and so they went before the voters. And, you know, it might be interesting. I imagine some of you who work in this area, sort of thinking about politics and democracy, would have some ideas about why we've seen this upsurge in, in uh, initiative petitions in the last 30 years. There are probably a lot of factors at work, some having to do with the legislature and how we operate, some having to do with campaign finance, uh, some having to do with uh, media. I, I would be interested to hear people's thoughts on that. Uh, but in any case, um, we have a lot of initiative petitions in Massachusetts now on big issues. And um, that has sort of brought to the surface as well the problems that are associated with initiative petitions. And Maya and uh, John and Ty have alluded to those. Uh, certainly the question of the complexity of the issues, the way in which the uh, initiatives are written, the way in which the statements are written, uh, generates a lot of confusion among voters. But uh, I'm also concerned uh, about sort of a, a, a sort of broader, sort of existential problem, as it were, in our political system, which I think that the uh, initiative petitions are, are contributing to. And that's sort of that sense of a, a loss of control, sort of the voters' sense of a loss of control over politics and over our political system. As they see, you know, all this money flowing into these battles, all of this media, all of this uh, sort of uh, extreme partisanship around the issues, what John just pointed to, you know, if, if you support this, you'll be with all the angels, and if you oppose it, you will be with all the devils. It, it's part of a, I think, a broader sense of 
uh, sort of the loss of, of uh, citizen control of our political process um, that I think deserves our attention. I'll just say a couple words sort of about how we found uh, CIR. I mean, those two questions are ones that have been in my mind uh, about uh, initiative petitions and about our political system more broadly, sort of the, the issue of, of the confusion uh, in voters' minds, the, the problems of how to get good information into voters' hands, and also that, that bigger question of the sense of a loss of, of, of ownership or control over the process. And uh, so I've been thinking about this and looking for ways to, uh, in my small way, uh, make a difference at that. And uh, fortunately, I had a, a new legislative aide come to work with me uh, starting last fall. And uh, he uh, is standing in the back here, Sam <laughs> Feigenbaum. And uh, Sam, who's also a, a, a student of American politics and democratic theory, was the one who came upon CIR. And he has been working closely with uh, Ty in particular uh, and helped me to develop this draft, which we have now filed uh, as House 561. And I want to acknowledge Sam and also um, point out that if there are questions I can't answer, he's going to answer them. <laughs> um, so let me finally just say a couple of words about what's going to happen to the bill and sort of its prospects for, for passage. It's a very, very, it's a brand new bill. This is the first session it's been filed. Uh, it's a new idea in, in Massachusetts. I don't think many people uh, around the state um, have heard about it, and I'm sure many of my colleagues in the legislature have never heard about it. So we've got a lot of work to do just to educate people uh, as to what the concept is. We've begun conversations with our election law committee. Sam uh, took John and Ty to meet with the staff of our election law committee, which will presumably be the committee that has jurisdiction over the bill. Uh, and we will gradually, hopefully not too gradually, do our work of education among our colleagues. I want to point out one of my colleagues, Jay Kaufman, is here today. And um, I appreciate his presence and hopeful that he will uh, get on board and help me work on this bill. But a, a, an additional idea that we have, and I think this is something that uh, Ty can speak to uh, because this was the route that you took in Oregon, as I understand, is that we're considering doing a, a pilot run mm -hmm. uh, of CIR uh, with private funding, uh, hopefully for the 2016 election, to demonstrate what it can bring to the process. Uh, we're in discussions uh, with, with Tufts, as well as with Healthy Democracy, uh, and they've shown some interest in potentially collaborating on a pilot. Uh, we would need to raise some money and then there's some possibility of some matching funds. Uh, we would need to raise in the range of $150,000, give or take, uh, to, to do a pilot. But uh, that would certainly be a, a, a good way to sort of give a vivid, vivid demonstration uh, to people uh, how this works and what it can bring uh, to the initiative petition process. So that's uh, where we're at. We're, of course, going to be working it within the legislature as well. But um, you know, realistically, we don't see this rising to, to the top of the agenda uh, right away. So we will also um, be looking to develop broader awareness of it through other, other channels and uh, hope that you can be of help to us in refining the ideas. As I said, the bill is available on the website. I invite you to take a look at it and give us your feedback. And um, we hope that uh, 
we can generate some movement on this. Let me pose one question and then let's have a broader discussion. Um, so John, and this is for bo both of you, um, when that woman was puzzled that there were all these exemptions, it made me think of the fact that often when a bill is going through a legislature or, or an initiative is being crafted or a citizen movement initiative from the bottom up, will deliberately create exclusions as part of the political process of political compromise. And what might seem incredibly befuddling to the naive person going in may be, in fact, what is necessary. So when FDR and the Congress created Social Security, I believe it was only about 16% of the population that was of that age was covered. And it took several revisions and expansions in the 1950s. So it took basically 15 years um, where different categories were included because there were compromises on lots of things, including Southern racist politicians that wanted to keep control over the black workforce and exclude domestics, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think anybody would look back and say, that kind of strategic compromise, I mean, this obviously didn't go to the voters, except that FDR was reelected, <laughs> um, that that kind of strategic compromise on an issue so difficult to get through wasn't, in retrospect, a very wise decision. And so I just want, I, I, I'm not challenging this at all because I'd want as much as possible as you, transparent and clear, but I can imagine somebody in John's position at times saying, this is not gonna go anywhere with my colleagues because X, Y, and Z, but if we get our foot in the door now, two years we can get a bigger foot in the door, and two years later we can get an even bigger foot in the door, and not all of that sausage making should be seen by the public. So that's just something to you know, throw out there. Sure, uh, one thing I would say is, um, if the law includes subtlety that on reflection has a logic to it, that is not gonna fly with the electorate in general, right? They're not gonna see the subtlety, they're not gonna get to it. Uh, opponents are just gonna point right to the thing they're not gonna like and they're gonna underscore it, circle it, and that's why it will fail. Uh, a citizen's panel uh, like this, a CIR, actually can get there. Let me just give you an example. So Oregon had a bizarre law, no other state had this, where they basically had to give back some tax revenue if they underestimated how much they would get from corporations that year. They kicked the funds back, and the proposal was that this tax law should be changed, and the money should be given to schools. Um, now, uh, on, it sounded great, right? But the more closely they looked at it, they started to recognize uh, there's actually a subtlety in here that they that they don't want voters to quite recognize, which is that they actually can't guarantee that the money goes back to schools. You just absolutely can't do that. The legislature has the authority to set the budget. And yes, this money could go to schools, but then we could take just as much out, right? And when voters hear that, um, you know, that, that, that's alarming to them. And when the panel heard that, that was, they felt lied to by the campaign. And in, in a sense, they were a, a little bit deceived. But what I loved about the course of, again, a five-day process, and, and I should add that the proponents of this law officially boycotted it. They didn't want to get mixed up on it because if they did badly, they didn't want to look like they failed. So magically, other people appeared on their behalf. Um, you mean they 
Yeah, that's right, that's right. But in spite of figuring this out, the panel figured out this little nuance, and it took them a few days, called in some state legislators, they figured that out. They still wound up supporting the law. It, they basically swallowed hard and said, okay, the status quo is worse than this deception that we're being uh, treated to. So yeah, overwhelming, I think it was 19 to 5, we support it. But citizens who read the statement, the first thing they saw was this point that clarifies, by the way, you've probably been a little bit deceived. This, you know, and there was some reaction on the part of people reading the statement against yeah. the law. So it's interesting that e the CIR can in some ways reproduce that struggle, but I like to think in my heart that they knew exactly what they were doing when they put that at the top of the law, which they support, but they wanted people to know that you'd all had your chain yanked. And I, I would go back to uh, comment about aligning our ideals with, with our practice too, because on the premise of direct democracy is you have a percentage of the electorate that's required to sign a petition to indicate mm -hmm. the public's will to put a policy forth for a vote. So, I mean, and obviously that's, you know, that, that intent rarely works in effect. I mean, it does sometimes. So the premise of you know, the sausage making before you actually ask for, you know, that temperature check on political will, um, I think it's entirely appropriate that, you know, a CIR would point out that nuance in part to realign the process with how it's supposed to work, so. Okay, so let's take some, maybe a couple questions at a time to get it started and and say who you are, please. Okay, okay. that's it. My name, and Paul My name is Paul Bernstein, uh, I live nearby. So being part of Massachusetts, the first thing I thought of before these nice details you've given us in the very, very end was, well, we do get a statement in our voting uh -huh. packet which does say this is what the law is supposed to do, and then it says this is what the arguments are for it, this is the arguments against it, and I have found that very, very helpful. And so my question was going to be, well, what does the CIR add? And I'm beginning to get a flavor of it, but could you make that comparison for us? Well, I'll, I'll let Ty sort of speak to the detail, but uh, of course the pros and cons are just a rehash of what you've been hearing on the airwaves uh, for the weeks leading up to the election. So, so they are know this is all good this is all bad um, well are you talking about the the actual pro and con statements that come from the partisans because what you have is a is a summary from the Secretary of State right. then you right. have a pro right. from a the supporters and a con from the opponents those tend to be in my view basically a rehash of what you've been hearing in their media campaigns the Secretary of State's uh, summary you know it tends to be you know relatively bare bones and I think um, I, I think probably the thing that um, I liked the best about your clip there, John, was when the woman said, this doesn't sound like it was written by a politician. This sounds like it was written by voters. Um, even the Secretary of State, you know, he or she doesn't have a, a, an immediate stake in the contest, at least shouldn't, um, still writes like a bureaucrat. They don't really get into it in the way that I think the average voter would. And I think that that's both a matter of um, sort of presentation and, and, and uh, terminology and so on. But it's also, again, what I was talking about earlier about, I, I think that the voters feel differently about it or would feel differently about it if they felt the description was coming not from an elected official, even a supposedly neutral elected official, but from a group of their fellows. So I, I think that that's my feeling about how it differs. 
My, my question follows up on that, because as I gather, the two things that a CAR does are first, it uh, gives information to the voter in perhaps a better way from the pro and con statements. That It's unclear to me whether in every case it would be a better way, but so one is the information. Two is that over time, as voters came to understand what a CIR was and what it meant to select citizens randomly from the, uh, the citizens in the state and what it meant to have a deliberative process, then over time I would expect that the group itself could serve as a cue. It could serve as a trusted proxy. You could say, well, you know, these people have reflected. They are, but I wouldn't expect that to happen uh, maybe within the first 10 years. In other words, you would have to have had experience with what the group had, had uh, suggested, what eventuated, um, what people said about it and so forth. These, the, the process of random selection is not something that the American public is familiar with. So, um, and indeed, even deliberation, uh, even in town meetings, people don't really deliberate. Um, and even, <laughs> that's right, and even in, the even in the legislature, they do in committee, but quite often, people do deliberate in committee, but it's not, so there are two features of this, the deliberation and the random selection, that are not all that familiar to voters, and I wouldn't expect them to be, serve as a cue right away, but I might expect as voters got used to this over time, for the actual CIR group itself to become what Mark Warren calls a trusted proxy. I just wanted to distinguish between those two and ask you all whether you thought that my prognosis might be uh, accurate. So it's a follow-up on this issue of information. Uh, my name is Taylor Woods. I'm a second year policy student at the Kennedy School. And I was going to ask for a little more granularity about the CIR process. Um, I grew up in Texas and wrote a report on voter registration in Texas um, and was going to ask about administration. Ca Texas has a very strong county system and I was wondering how you saw the costs and setup of the CIR in states with weaker secretary of states and less money um, for the process and how you saw funding and logistics for a more county-based process. And also, I worked for Senator Rockefeller, West Virginia, which is a state where you know, Marshall University and West Virginia University separating the experts from a, the coal industry and say, you know, there was a ballot initiative on a coal question. You know, there's a regulatory capture and, you know, just, you know, so much of the state depends on that for the economy. And I was wondering if you get a little more granular about how you select the experts and say like the timber industry in Oregon 20 years ago okay. could have had that same effect at Oregon State and University of Oregon. And I was wondering how um, you saw, you know, both the you know, county system and the uh, selection of experts in states with a um, little more concentration of industry. Okay, let's have one more and then open it up for a new round of exchange. Hi, uh, my name's Georgia Hollisterzman. I'm a mid-career master's in public administration student here. Um, and you alluded to the possibility that this might change not just how much people know about ballot questions, but how they make their choices and what they choose. Um, so I'm hoping you will talk a little bit more about how that does or how you anticipate that that might play out. I'll start with that one and, and tie back to an earlier one. 
Um, one of the experiments we're going to do for an, it's a senior honors thesis. One of the, our undergrads came up with the idea of doing one of these standard CIR experiments, except the next thing in the survey is another ballot issue. And right in front of them is more information, perhaps another CIR, perhaps just plain old government information, and just see how long they stay with it. That is, does the experience of now having read a CIR before I ask you how to vote make you want to slow down on the next thing, which is a real thing on your ballot? So I think there are some interesting experimental ways of seeing if there is kind of that effect of CIR. Anecdotally and qualitatively, one of my favorite little quotes from a CIR panelist is I asked, they were on the bus to the press conference, which was a completely pointless event where they have a press conference and nobody pays any attention. Um, and on the bus ride, he, I asked him, hey, was this, was this you know, exciting? He said, it was, it was great, but now I feel terrible because there's eight questions on our ballot. You know, I'm ready for one of them now. And I'm looking forward to reading the other CIR's statement on the second one, and then I've got to figure out what to do with the other six. So, you know, that consciousness for a panelist whoosh, goes way high. But I think for some readers, too, it can shoot up. And then my other comment is on downstream effects, which was what uh, part of what Jenny was talking about is what happens in the longer term. One of the things that could happen is that the CIR could dramatically change the quality of initiatives that you start getting. If I'm a campaign strategist for direct democracy and the CIR is well established in my state, the first thing I tell my client is we've got to conduct ourselves a deliberative focus group and we've got to keep revising this thing until it flies. And then we'll figure out the title and we'll go forward. In other words, good laws might actually be going through the CIR. Um, I hope you wouldn't get rid of the CIR and think, oh, the laws will be good now. No, the whole point is, is it's, you know, it's the same thing that attorneys do when they're preparing for a jury, right? They think about, is this going to make sense? You know, I'll talk about the second set of questions. Um, so in terms of experts and kind of granularity of the process, we've handled it three different ways. So initially, the first five CIRs we ran, we um, worked with the campaigns for and against the initiative to ideally identify a full range of experts that would be essentially on call if the panel selected them to, uh, to bring them to hear their testimony. So I should start by saying that the, the panel works with the information provided by the Secretary of State first. And they hear from the advocates at every single CIR. Pro and con. Yeah. Pro and con. And in the CIRs, the first five, the way that it worked was, okay, once that's been done, who do you want to hear from based upon the questions you have and the information that you've already looked at? And you get a little short bios on all the yeah. people you could hear from. That's right. And so we did that for years. Uh, the process, we made modifications last year to test running this entirely without quote unquote neutral experts. Part of that was to acknowledge the political reality that with some of the issues we dealt with last year, especially around uh, GMO labeling, a, the campaigns would never agree to who that neutral <laughs> body would be, and B, anybody that we could find, and we tested this with a test on the county level previously, um, to bring in didn't want to do it, because they didn't want to be under that level of scrutiny given the degree of complexity and acrimony over that issue. So we chose to run CIRs where the advocates essentially had to work in tandem uh, in real time and panel presentations to answer uh, the questions of the panel, and that worked out quite well. We also ran a um, CIR in Arizona where we had a whole panel discussion of background experts just to get the panel up to speed on the question of pension reform. And we had a, a strong partner uh, within um, Arizona State University that helped us to do that. So, 
And, and just a note on that one, yep. that one was for the city of Phoenix. That's right. Another one was in Jackson County. So the whole idea of holding a CIR on city county level mm -hmm. has already been piloted a couple times and in some ways actually was what Ned was Ned Crosby was thinking of initially was King County or Seattle yep. before it even went statewide. Yeah, and, then, and in terms of administration of the program, we spent, that was, ultimately that was the sticking point. So we demonstrated over the course of a few years in Oregon that the efficacy of the program proved that it could work, that it would have an impact. And then the question became, okay, how do you, in a political context, uh, ensure its integrity in its administration? So it's a very unique model in Oregon where we have a standing semi-independent commission under the executive branch that is comprised of former CIR panelists, comprised of former moderators. Is that clever? And then a handful of appointees from the majority minority offices uh -huh. from within Oregon, a very select group of individuals that have helped to write ballot titles of folks that are already identified by campaigns as being essentially neutral. Well, I, I just wanted Ty to talk a little bit more about precisely that, which is you know, what have been the, the, the put, where has the pushback been? Now that you've gone through, what, three elections with it now? Yeah, three election yeah. cycles. Um, where's the pushback been from? Yes. Okay. Um, it's it's interesting because you have uh, you know, our experience is basically deep within Oregon and thin within Arizona and Colorado. So I'll I'll just speak to Oregon in terms of this. Um, it's a small community of political professionals that run campaigns uh, for initiatives, and they're mixed, to be frank. Um, their greatest degree of pushback has come from those groups that feel that the CIR takes away their ability to control their campaign message. Um, it's a pretty understandable point of view. Um, we've worked with them, we've worked with elected officials to make everything transparent that we've done, which has really helped significantly. But that, uh, in Oregon to date, it's, it's a perennial challenge that we face, just because of the overlap of interests and you know, the fact the CIR engenders to a degree um, uh, a sense of winners and losers. And, and w what, are, what are you hearing from the elected officials in light of what they're hearing from the losers especially, as well as from that small community, which is an important community to them too? Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, there's constant maintenance and diligence uh, that we practice to make sure folks understand the value of the CIR and the research. I should point out, so it's a little short vignette on this. Um, the CIR in 2012 that John mentioned where there was a boycott of the process, uh, which was largely just a political move to say we don't want to have greater scrutiny of this. Uh, the same groups came back and did a study of um, the CIR to get a better handle on its impact and I think recognized the value of it uh, to campaigns and came around and participated the next election cycle. But it is an ever-evolving challenge that we deal with in Oregon. I would just add one, one little detail, which is it, it, <laughs> if, if both sides are winning and losing at the same rate, less of a problem. Yep. What's a problem is if one side thinks it's on a hot streak. That is, their way of manipulating the process is always going to work. That's when you're going to have a more concentrated opposition. Okay, so let's have a few more beginning with Helen. Say who you are and, and then... No, um, I'm Hélène Landemore from uh, Yale University. I have a question that exactly follows up, follow up, uh, follow up on the previous point about the, the role of elected officials in particular. So it's a question for John Echt, I assume. So time and time again, direct um, participatory democratic innovations are killed in parliaments or stalled in, you know, in various ways by people who feel threatened by 
this kind of initiative. So how, what do you see as the main obstacle on your side of the, of the equation? And what would you recommend that people on the other side do to avoid them, to, to, to promote cooperation as opposed to obstruction and, and you know, a sense that it's a zero-sum game between the, the, you know, the people and their elected uh, officials? Uh, CM Chen, uh, I'm a mid-career student at the Kennedy School. A um, uh, question about the mechanics of the uh, CIR uh, statement. Um, I, I'm, I'm uh, comparing the uh, CIR panel to a jury. So how do you, uh, how can you ensure that the statement, CIR statement, is really objective? Because you, 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 uh, there may be a very influential figure within the panel, just like the GMO example. If there's the uh, member very very feel very strongly about GMO issue. He may be very too influential within the group. So how do you ensure that the statement itself is uh, objective? Hi, I'm Kelly Lack. I'm a master's of public policy student. Um, I'm just wondering, can you describe some of the um, or how you go about recruiting people who you do um, randomly select, and what obstacles you might have in convincing people to you know give up a couple of days um, to debate one issue, especially you know people like single mothers or people with very you know demanding jobs who you know, might not necessarily see the immediate benefits to them. Well, I'll, I'll uh, address the first question, though I don't really have a good answer um, because we haven't really run it out enough in public to, to know where the opposition is going to come. And w that's why I asked the question of <laughs> Ty, trying to learn from what their experience was in Oregon. Um, and I want to sort of dig into that further with him probably at another time. Um, so I can only sort of speculate where I think the, the, the opposition is going to come. I think there will be questions around the mechanics. There will be people who will ask, uh, is this truly a representative group? Um, where are they, is their information really complete? Um, you know, are there you know, hidden sources of influence? Um, there'll be issues about where, where is the money coming from? And is, does that in any way translate into some sort of hidden influence. Um, and then I think there will be many people who, well, I don't want to say many people, but there will be those who will say, well, we already have a very robust market of ideas. Anybody is free to speak out on these issues. They're free to share their ideas via the media or any other way that they choose. Why do we need an additional voice in this process? Th those are the sorts of things that I would anticipate we will hear. Um, and I don't know, Ty, if you've heard all of those and have the answer that I can use. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pressure. Um, so I'll talk to you um, a little bit about that, but also touch on some of the questions around, um, around objectivity and, and selection. And that's and I say that in part because a lot of the questions we received early on around the CR are really about, about those concerns. Like how can you ensure you have a relatively objective process? How can you ensure that you have a group of individuals that is an honest reflection, you know, with good intent, trustworthy? Because um, that's, that's where this started, was really the concerns around process. Like how do you get a really good process? The concerns about politics it's interesting because it, it, it's changed just about every election cycle, and it depends on outcomes, it depends on kind of the intensity of what took place. But when you bring it back to the service you're providing for the public and the public's value and valuing in the CIR, it's really a pretty simple discussion too, because it's really about 
ensuring direct democracy works. And what we've seen in the data is that it works across the entire political spectrum. And that's something I think that really very much validates the approach. What I'll start that it's utilized by the entire electorate. It seems like there's very little demographic differences in terms of who actually benefits and gains from this. Likewise. I, I would add to that we're also not finding any demographic patterns in terms of yet, though we have another way of looking at this coming soon, uh, in terms of who participates and who seems to be influencing the course of the discussion. There's a more systematic quantitative way to do that that we're going to get to soon. But yeah, and I'll, and I'll just, so everyone's using it in the yeah. panel itself as well. Yeah, and I'll just touch on kind of the top one, and John's research gets into this pretty deeply. I am um, the process in terms of ensuring objectivity. And one of the things we really emphasize is the random selection process to bring people into the room in the first place. And we start that with a large random sample of the electorate. So we pull a ten thousand person sample randomly out of the statewide electorate from the voter registration list and send an invitation about this opportunity for public service that doesn't detail what the initiative is going to be, but just details the opportunity and requests that demographics be sent in if somebody can take the amount of time to do this. Um, from that response, which is generally in Oregon been between about 4 and 9%, uh, we then make everyone anonymous, put them in a spreadsheet essentially, and then draw from that a demographic sample of 20 to 24 voters that match the electorate if you were to squish it down to a room. Um, we match demographics ranging from age, gender, ethnicity, party affiliation, likely, unlikely voters, all the different things that you'd really want to see in a small group as a starting place to this. So when you start a CIR, you have a group that is a fair reflection of the state generally with no axe to grind and no prehistory with the issue. And what are folks paid to participate? Is it the average wage? That's right. So we also, in Oregon, we provide, uh, we provide a per diem. Uh, we cover travel costs. We, we feed people. We don't, we don't leave out food. Um, and we also do things like cover child care as well, depending on a case-by-case -case basis, what people need. The deliberative process itself to retain its objectivity which is part of the goal with this, um, is facilitated. So you know, point blank, it, it's facilitated by, by two professional mediators start to finish mm -hmm. so that you know that there's going to be all of those things that you'd want to see in a good deliberative process in terms of you know, mutual respect, equal airtime, um, et cetera. The process also allows for feedback on a daily basis from the panel itself, and a lot of this is in John's research, where the panel is asked to identify any issues that may have arisen. They're also asked to evaluate the process in terms of a set of metrics on a daily basis that are then looked at by staff every day to see if there's something going off course. Like are the facilitators neutral and so on. Right. And if anything does come up, that's, that's our opening to address it the following morning, first thing. And we take that really seriously. And that's, I think, a large part of what makes the CIR work so well. And I would say I mean, the last thing with this in terms of objectivity is the charge that's presented to the panel. So when people are brought to the CIR, the charge really is you know, not evaluating this issue based upon your own personal conviction, but thinking about, as a voter working to inform fellow voters, uh, what would you want to know? And that that charge, I think, permeates a lot of the work as well. So those are a few things that I would say. It's a little longer than I plan on speaking, but. 
I just had one little anecdotal detail from the first uh, CIR panel, and then we saw it a week later at the second one back in 2010. Uh, there was, they were going around the circle introducing themselves, and one of the young women there, maybe in her late 20s, said, you know, I'm realizing this is the first time I've been away from home without my kids. In fact, it's the first time, I, you know, my kids and I haven't been in the same place for a night, let alone four nights. And then that was said like four times around the circle, that same exact thing. And then the next week, there were three or four women who had the same experience. Now, those aren't necessarily single mothers who were able to get childcare and have someone watch their kids. But what was striking me was, and you would hear different versions of the story, which was, this is totally outside my experience, and I didn't know a space like this existed. You know, that's fascinating to hear. And I think it'll be kind of less exciting in the future because people say, yeah, I knew about this. I'm so excited, but I knew about this. Um, it's like a great way to market it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. A week without nice. your kids. Get away from food. No, no. Everybody loves their kids. Is there a hand popping up here? Okay. To create a sacred space, I guess, that where people feel free to talk openly about all of the feelings and things like that, you, you have to have a very gifted facilitator. What is the process for you to select those facilitators? Yeah, great question. So we have in statute in Oregon that certified mediators and their, their certification for that in Oregon uh, kind of sets the bar, essentially. We then, over the years, we've worked with a select group of folks that we've trained. Uh, moving forward into 2016, we're going to expand our work on establishing a set training, but that's, our practice has been very hands-on. I have to add a detail that I think some of you are interested in the granularity of this, and this mm -hmm. is something I'm only coming to appreciate in the last couple of days I've had to t talk with Ty. In, in Ned Crosby, when he created the citizen's jury, one of the rules he wound up developing, because he was often the facilitator, was the citizens control the process. That is, he sets an agenda, but they can throw him out of the room if they need to. And if you know Ned, this is not surprising, A, that they would throw him out of the room, and B, <laughs> that he'd have enough self-awareness to say, they might want to throw me out of the room. That was inherited in the CIR a little bit, in that the agenda's a little bit flexible, the facilitators start to think, okay, I, could, I think I could improve that part and so on. This is a terrible, terrible way to approach the CIR, Ty has discovered. The more that the facilitators feel that they own the process, the more they're gonna improvise on the fly and sometimes really mess it up, slow it down, you know, use a bad alternative procedure. So it's partly, I think, in the reality of the political world where you want things to be fixed and you don't want an advocate to say, you should do option B. I think they're moving toward giving the facilitators less freedom, letting them be excellent facilitators, but not giving them a sense of control over restructuring the process on the fly. Just thought you'd find that interesting. Do you, ha do you draw demographically from level of education, income, and employment, and un unemployment? We Th those three are part of, the, of, of your democratic yeah, we demographic. Draw from, <laughs> yeah, we draw from education. Uh, we don't draw from uh, employment. And we, that, we got sensitized to that because we were detecting, just anecdotally, uh, a too high of a percentage of retirees, which happens with juries sometimes, too. Not just juries, but every deliberative process that we know of, of this random selection, uh, it's, it's a constant. I'll add one point Retirees. To, so this kind of goes back to the question, too, about taking time off from work. So we, uh, part of the challenge last year with the CIR, so we took it from five days to roughly three and a half. And part of the intent was to address that by making it short enough to be run over the weekend. And That's I right. think we saw some really positive gains yep. from doing that in terms of employment, because it's definitely been a concern. 
I was thinking, have you, I mean, I, I know face-to-face, -face, you know, beats a lot of, uh, you know, online versions of that sort of thing, but it, would it be possible to have a version of it online that would be distributed over time where people could show up, you know, when the kids are in bed or, you know, something a bit more flexible? Can I jump in? I, so we actually have some colleagues at Penn State University in information sciences. Uh, and if you go to the, the research website, there's, it's the first article on the CIR that doesn't have a co-author that was part of our initial core team. Um, and they've been experimenting with a process like this in the borough of State College, a teeny little entity where Penn State University is. And uh, what they've done is they have a very small, this is purely experimental, uh, very small panel meet face to face and then go off and be online for a little while for a few days and then come back face to face for the end. And the borough of State College is actively involved in this. It's not just completely experimental. I mean, this actually is relevant to policy issues and the borough is fascinated by this. And they are very committed to developing the software in a way that is really intuitive for this. I, it feels to me like they and others like them who are trying this are at least 10 years off. That is, I, they're not creating the kind of reality that you can create face to face. I'm not going to say it's inconceivable because the world keep a changing right in front of me, but they're not close in terms of the experience, the subjective experience. And when you talk to the people who did the face-to-face -face online hybrid, oh, they want to be face-to-face, -face, you know. And they like some things about the online. I can read my documents in the middle of the night, but they want to be there together and have that powerful experience that is part of the face-to-face -face democracy uh, experience that, that this gives them. Any other kind of wrap-up comments before we... I, I will Thank say that th there is one online element that, that they might experience experiment with in 2016. I know you've applied for a grant for this. Yeah. Remember all those people who said yes to the invitation but never got to go? There could be an interesting role or two for them. They could kind of in some ways put in some <laughs> inputs to the front end of the process. They could give feedback on the process and they could just follow the process as well. So there may be a way for a large online group to even build over time that interfaces with this and creates a larger constituency for it in terms of public legitimacy, even while you still privilege that face-to-face -face space. I, I, I've really benefited from all of the questions and uh, the questions about the granularity um, hmm. are certainly something that we're gonna need to get on top of because I think that's where a lot of the, the questions will come to us. Um, but I am also very interested in this uh, in terms of where it fits in the, in the political process mm -hmm. as a whole. And um, I, I would welcome your thoughts, again, as people who think about this um, in a more uh, thorough way than I'm able to. And, and it, will, it will be very contextualized. I and mean, we have a certain type of legislature in Massachusetts that operates in a certain fashion, has a certain set of power dynamics, interacts with uh, interest groups in a particular way. Um, we operate in a, in a certain campaign finance environment. Um, it, it may not be a coincidence that the the real kind of uh, you know take takeoff point in terms of the citizens initiative or the initiative petition in Massachusetts was in 1986, which was the year that the Massachusetts legislature, uh, responding to a Supreme Court decision a few years earlier, removed the restrictions on corporate uh, spending on ballot questions. So uh, th there are a lot of bigger uh, sort of factors at work here. And one of the reasons, again, that I'm drawn to looking at CIR is to think about how it might ameliorate some of the other problems we have in our political system. And you mentioned earlier the, the, the issue of, of compromise. And I said earlier, many of the issues that now go to the ballot in Massachusetts, I would prefer to see handled through the sausage-making process in the legislature. And I have, uh, I have a hunch 
that part of what's going on now is we have a, uh, a, a legislative gridlock that's the result of powerful interests that would prefer to see the issue go to the ballot mm -hmm. because they feel they can win, again, because of that campaign finance and media and other context that operates. So I think it's interesting also to think about where CIR might fit into our sort of broader agenda of political reform. I'm just going to say it because for the researchers might want to know and the public might want to know, I was phoned up just as a random something or other by some people who said they had a, it was going to take me five minutes. Well, it wound up taking 45 minutes and they were designing their arguments for the ballot initiative. They never announced that, but once I saw the ballot initiative four weeks later, I said, oh, that's why they asked me all those questions. So yeah, there's a lot of heavy money and, and it, it, they were, I got real angry at them because they were really trying to find out the best way to manipulate people. And I said that to them. I said, you're, you're giving me these choices, this way, that way, and both of them are partial and both of them are incorrect on what you're talking about. It had to do with the um, payment for people uh, on sick leave and what size companies with the law and all. Anyway, just to know that that's underground stuff or uh, maybe other people knew about it, but I've never seen it discussed. Okay, uh, Ty, did you want to get one last word in there? And yeah, I'll just say one quick, okay. very and quick then comment. I, I just want to say it was a pleasure today to be out here. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real, it was a joy for me personally. I appreciate being organized and to talk about the CIR and, and the interest uh, as well. So I yeah, so just wanted to say thank you before we wrapped up. Thank you. Thank you.